Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And it has become a little bit of a tradition since Tracy and I have been hosting the show that uh, as we head into the Halloween season, we usually do an episode or two about the life of a famous horror actor. And this year, uh, we lost a man of incredible stature and fame, Christopher Lee. And we don't usually cover someone that reaches into the very recent past, uh, but he was quite amazing in a number of ways. Uh, he wasn't just a famous star of the silver screen. He was, by any account, a really amazing man. He spoke multiple languages. He was an incredible singer. He was a skilled fencer. He was great at golf. It's one of those things that when he died, a lot of people asked us, ooh, please do an episode. And it didn't seem quite right to jump on the dog pile of coverage of his life that was going on then. So no. we wanted to wait and kind of do one where it nat- more naturally fit into our usual schedule anyway of doing a, a horror actor. But it, he's so much more than a horror actor. And what really makes him interesting to me in context of this podcast is that he was also at many intersections of sort of famous historical events. And he was tied through family to numerous famous historical figures. So today we are going to talk about the life of Christopher Lee. Christopher Frank Carandini Lee was born on May 27, 1922, in London's Belgravia neighborhood, into a decidedly upscale household. His mother was Italian, and she was the Contessa Estelle Marie. Through his mother's noble line in Italy, Lee had a lot of connections that were uh, basically, as we just referred to, went back to very important historical figures. Estelle was a distant relative through marriage of the Borgias, and Prince Alexander of Battenberg, Queen Victoria's grandson, was Christopher's godfather. And his father, Geoffrey Lee, was a soldier uh, that had served in the Boer War and World War One. And Geoffrey and Estelle had two children together, Christopher and his older sister, Zandra. But uh, Jeffrey had some gambling problems, and because of those, the marriage turned sour, and the couple separated in 1926, so Christopher would have only been a small boy of four at that point. Uh, Estelle moved to Sweden with the children, and two years later, the divorce was finalized. The Contessa and her children moved back to London, and Lee's mother remarried, taking Harcourt George Croix Rose as her second husband. He was a banker. And when Christopher was 17, his stepfather went bankrupt and his mother's second marriage fell apart, kind of all presumably related. And he ended his school at Wellington College. And he had actually attended Wellington because the family was already having trouble before this and couldn't afford to enroll him at Eton, even though he had passed the entrance exams and had been admitted there. And so once he stopped his schooling, he got a job working as a city clerk to help make ends meet. That same year, which was 1939... Lee was also present at a unique historical event, which was the last public execution by guillotine. And that took place in France on June 17th of that year. Eugene Weidman was put to death for multiple murders and kidnappings, and Lee was there in the crowd. He apparently was something of an execution buff, and he allegedly memorized the names of all public executioners employed by England going back for centuries. Yeah, that's a whole interesting story in and of itself, and I would kind of love to cover that particular execution because it it is unique in that we have pictures of it, which is not normally the case, uh, because the crowd was so unruly that uh, it took longer than expected and the sun came up so people could actually get good photographs. Uh, So it's that's a whole fascinating event. And he was there for that. 
1939, uh, Christopher also volunteered with Finnish forces that were fighting in World War II. Uh, many British soldiers did. He didn't see any actual fighting. He was stationed in set, instead with the rest of the British volunteers at a safely removed from the action guard duty assignment. And he later worked in the military as an office clerk and switchboard operator. In 1942, Lee enlisted with the Royal Air Force. He couldn't fly because he had vision problems, so consequently he worked as an intelligence officer for the Long Range Desert Patrol during World War II. Primarily, this was in North Africa and Italy. And during his time in intelligence, uh, after a while, he was selected for Churchill's Elite Special Operations Group, and this is known by the best nickname of all time, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Uh, and while the work of this unit is still classified, Lee did speak on several occasions throughout his life about having witnessed some very terrible things during this time and having had to harden himself to it. And he was so sort of self-aware that you could tell he really tried to kind of um, reconcile this, you know, having to to both be someone who was hardened to things like that and also be a very compassionate person. And it's one of those things that uh, it's easy to think of sort of this kind of activity, this, uh, you know, Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare in terms of the Christopher Lee that we've seen playing villains in films. But keep in mind that he was really barely out of, you know, boyhood at this point. He was in his very early 20s during the war. After the war ended, he was part of a unit that was tasked with investigating war crimes, in part because of his fluency in multiple languages. His group was tasked with tracking war criminals. And in 1946, his military career concluded. And coming up, we're going to talk about the career that made Lee a household name. But first, let's have a word from one of the great sponsors that keeps the show going. In 1947, Christopher Lee switched fields completely. Uh, when he opted to pursue an acting career. And he had been offered a desk job with his pre-war employer when World War II had ended and he had finalized his military career, but he actually turned that job down. And this move into acting was against the wishes of his mother. She really felt that acting was for people of questionable morals. In part, this turn into acting was influenced by Christopher Lee's relative, Niccolo Carandini. He used his business and political influence as an Italian ambassador to Great Britain to convince his friend, Filippo Del Gudice, who ran a film studio, to get Christopher a seven-year contract with the Rank Entertainment Group. But even though Rank made the deal, the prevailing prevailing opinion was that Christopher Lee was too tall to be an actor. Later in his life, he he would say that that's like saying, you're too short to play the piano. Indeed. And he was certainly handsome and he was an English gentleman to the core, but he really struggled to find leading man roles. He was told, as we just mentioned, that his height, which was six five, uh, almost two meters, uh, and his dark skin would not make him uh, a believable English gentleman in film. So he was cast constantly as outsiders and villains. If there was a non-Caucasian character in a film... This was, remember, at a time when films often did not seek out actors that were actually from the um, uh, background that they were, the the character was, he would always get cast in those. So if there was an Arab, if there was a uh, a Latino character, basically anything that was not a white English gentleman, they would just give it to Christopher Lee. To get an acting education, Lee first performed in repertory theater productions with rank. But these stage forays were really not to his liking. He floundered in front of a live audience. And in one instance, 
got laughter when he wasn't supposed to when he accidentally put his hand through a part of the set that was supposed to be a window with glass in it. Yeah, it was just one of those moments of absurdity and kind of confusion. And he really, as you can imagine, I can't imagine how, how Chris Furley would react to being laughed at, particularly when he was a younger man. Um, and this next story, I, I will explain why I tell it, because it's a little, uh, not really off color, but it's, it's body humor. Uh, as part of the rank organization's youth company, which was also colloquial called, colloquially called the Charm School, he also appeared on the BBC magazine program Kaleidoscope a couple times. And in this, these cases, these, uh, young actors would act out charades that were designed to represent a word that viewers were supposed to guess. It was kind of like an at-home play-along part of the show. And apparently, uh, he only did this a couple times, but one of the most famous and unintentionally funny appearances that he made on the show happened because when Lee, who was playing a police commissioner, stormed into the scene to chastise an actor who was playing an inspector, the other actor, Richard Molinas, had a terrible case of gas, possibly because he was nervous, and he began farting audibly for several minutes while they played the rest of the scene. And I don't usually like, like, gassy bodily function humor, but the thought of tall, elegant Sir Christopher Lee as a young man trying to keep a straight face through such an ordeal kind of cracks me up. It just seems so incongruous with who he is in my mind. Lee also got swordplay training as a member of Rank's Charm School, and he was really good at it, so that would go on to serve him for the rest of his theatrical career. And The Many Faces of Christopher Lee, which is a biographical documentary that was released in 1996, he said that he believed he had been in more sword fights on screen than any other actor. He was also extremely frank that in many instances he got carved up a bit. His primary advice was that you always have to make things feel like you truly like to harm the other person. Yeah, in terms of physical acting, he really went for it. And he, you know, that's dangerous. Uh, so sometimes he got hurt. Uh, he got his first film work the year after he had made the decision to become an actor. He played a very small part in a film about sort of this gothic romance that crossed multiple reincarnations called Corridor of Mirrors. And that same year, he also had a small uncredited role in the Laurence Olivier adaptation of Hamlet. He got his big break when he was cast in his first Hammer film, which was The Curse of Frankenstein. This was in 1957. He acted alongside Peter Cushing, who played Victor Frankenstein. The best of friends, the two of them would star in numerous Hammer films together throughout their careers. Yeah, the first 10 years of his career, really, he was just taking every part he could, kind of paying his dues, working in the trenches, doing all the work. And then this opportunity came up, and it really made him instantly famous. Um, Later, when Christopher Lee described the experience of getting into makeup for this part to a journalist, he said, quote, When I was in full makeup as the creature, which was pretty unattractive, somebody said I looked like a road accident. For a character who's put together from bits and pieces of other people, that's a very good description. In 1958, Lee starred in Horror of Dracula, which was released in Great Britain simply as Dracula. This was the first of nine films in which he would play the famous vampire. Ten if you count his uncredited appearance in the comedy One More Time, which came out in 1970. But after the first two of his Dracula films, he told his agent that he just didn't want to do it anymore. He felt like the writing was clumsy and it was just kind of shoving the character into various scenarios without any real creativity. And when he told the studio he didn't want to play the famous vampire anymore, there was a huge uproar. The head of the studio called the actor completely frantic. 
So the person he's talking about here is is a, a hammer bigwig named Jimmy Carreras. And so he says, I got a frantic telephone call from Jimmy Carreras saying, I already sold it to the American distributor with you playing the part. Then he said something I've never forgotten because it was sheer blackmail. Think of the people you're putting out of work. That's the only reason I did the last few Draculas. I didn't want to be the reason for a hundred people not working. Yeah, that's such a weaselly way to pressure somebody. Um, in 1959, Lee starred in another Hammer film as the lead in The Mummy. And his 1966 performance as Rasputin in Rasputin the Mad Monk is also another one that is almost always mentioned anytime you see like an abbreviated list of his incredibly long career. And that's one that has a, a really interesting and surreal historical connection because Lee had actually met Prince Yusupov and Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, the two men who assassinated Rasputin in real life when he was just a child. While Lee initially made his name in horror, he was not enthusiastic about how that genre developed over the years. In a 2001 interview with The Guardian's Will Hodgkinson, uh, he said, There have been some absolutely ghastly films recently, physically repellent. What we did was fantasy, fairy tales. No real person can copy what we did. But they can do what Hannibal Lecter does if they're so inclined. So people like Jeffrey Dahmer and Dennis Nilsson. And for that reason, I think such films are dangerous. Christopher Lee often played villains. I don't think that's any big secret. Uh, but what really made him special is that he had this uncanny ability to make viewers kind of root for the bad guy. Uh, his, his personas were always so incredibly compelling. So he famously, of course, played Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. And he did this in a way that was just this cool, unflappable and refined, uh, characterization. And even as he's, you know, in that movie, constructing a gun right in front of a man he's planning to shoot. He's just completely chill and relaxed. And he was so charming. And he is often cited in that film as sort of playing a dark counter to Roger Moore's Bond. So he's like the anti-James Bond. He has all the same attributes, but he is on the dark side of it. Incidentally, Lee was a cousin of James Bond author Ian Fleming through marriage, and he was the author's first choice to play Dr. No, although the studio had already made their choice before Fleming made this desire known to them. Yeah, he's just connected to everything. Uh, in 1961, Lee married 26-year-old Danish model and actress Brigitte Krenke. And unlike many showbiz couples, they stayed together until the end of Lee's life. They also had one daughter together, Christina. And by all accounts, Christopher Lee uh, was a completely devoted husband and father. And he was very protective of his private life. He definitely did not believe in voyeuristic celebrity culture. And his wife and daughter survived him. So we are not out of respect for him, we're not going to go into their story too much. While filming Dracula Has Risen from the Grave in the 1960s, Lee was deeply dismayed when British government officials came to Pinewood Studios to bestow an honor on the Hammer Pictures Company. As the officials arrived, he was in full Dracula mode, and he was mounted on a giant cross, and that was what they saw when they walked in. So he didn't feel like that was really the ideal introduction for a gentleman. Yeah, he was very dismayed at how that timing played out. Uh, he did eventually use his standing and influence at Hammer to bring in occult thriller author Dennis Wheatley to work on adaptations of his novels for the studio. And this proved to be both a feather in his cap and eventually something of a disaster. So the studio first produced The Devil Rides Out with Wheatley. That is often regarded as the best film the studio ever produced. It's a tale based on Satan worship among high society types and men of de- 
diplomatic power, and it was intended, according to Lee, to warn of the dangers of Satanism. But in 1976, Hammer worked with Wheatley on a film called To the Devil, a Daughter. And that project was not a success. It made money, but Wheatley was unhappy with it and distanced himself from the production. It was also the last horror film in the glorious mid-century run that Hammer Studios had. And it's a common joke, of course, that actors get a new script and the first thing they do is count their lines before they do anything else. Like they run through and see how many lines their character has. But Lee really broke the mold in this regard. He was known, in fact, for cutting many of his lines in his horror roles. Uh, he said that he would rather cut his own dialogue than speak a line that he felt was poorly written. And as a consequence, in the 1966 film Dracula, Prince of Darkness, he didn't speak a word. <laughs> Although he did hiss from time to time, he just thought the writing was so abysmal he refused to say any of those lines. But just the same, he is still incredibly mesmerizing. Writer Mark Kermode wrote in a Guardian piece after Lee died that when they had worked on a project called Fear in the Dark together, for which Lee provided narration, the actor wasn't the least bit shy about giving notes about the writing. Kermode described the corrections as polite but strong, which is the way... Many people seem to characterize him in a variety of different scenarios. Yeah, I think Lee was a gentleman, but he really uh, was willing to to voice his opinion, especially when it was important to him. Uh, in 1973, he starred in a film called The Wicker Man, and this film became a cult classic. Uh, Lee considered it to be some of his best work, and in it he played a man named Lord Summerisle who ran an island of pagans where ritual practices were part of the normal routine. And the setup is that a policeman goes to investigate some of what's going on on the island, and things go very poorly from there. But even though the movie gained a following, British Lion, which is the production company behind it, had no love for that particular child. Studio executives thought it was so bad that they heavily edited it into a shorter version and released it uh, basically as a B-film on a double on a double bill with Don't Look Now. But Lee really defended the film and he crusaded for it to get the attention that he felt it deserved. He felt really strongly that they had made a great film and what came out was not it. Uh, years later, the film was partially restored thanks to his efforts, and it was hailed as one of the most important and impressive horror films of all time. But even so, Lee always felt that there was a more complete cut of that film that existed somewhere and was even greater than the one that critics and audiences eventually loved. In 1977, Lee moved to Los Angeles to sort of change things up and look for new opportunities. One of these opportunities came in the form of hosting Saturday Night Live. This was during the Belushi, Murray, and Aykroyd era, and the Englishman held his own with the, all of basically the people who were regarded as the best comedians of the day. It was calculated in a way because he wanted the American entertainment industry to know that he could play funny. It really paid off. In part due to the Saturday Night Live appearance, he landed a role in Steven Spielberg's 1941. He was also offered the role that eventually went to Leslie Nielsen in Airplane. He wound up turning that down, which he later regretted. Yeah, it was kind of a nice change of pace. I think, you know, everyone had seen him in these horror roles and they took him very seriously. And he was this frightening, villainous figure. But he was very funny. And if you can, go to YouTube and search for his SNL appearances. There are a lot of small clips of it. And he's incredibly witty. He has great timing. Uh, and he worked pretty consistently on TV and film projects after his move to the U.S. So he worked in comedies and dramas alike in everything from Return to Witch Mountain to Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady. And we're going to talk about his 
incredibly prolific next stage of his career in just a moment. But first, let's have a word from one of our fabulous sponsors. So one of the pivotal, although unseen by many, roles in Lee's career came in 1998 when he starred as the founder of Pakistan. That's Muhammad Ali, Ali Jinnah in the film Jinnah. When he was speaking at the College of Dublin in 2011, he said that this was the most important thing he'd ever done, although it wasn't theatrically released outside of Pakistan. Lee believed that the limited release was due to the fact that his character's speeches told the people of Pakistan that they were free to follow and practice whatever religions they wished. And some person or group didn't want that information seen by the rest of the world. For context, in an inordinately simplified way, it's not inordinately. For context, in an extremely simplified way, Muhammad Ali Jinnah separated Pakistan from India after religious conflict between Hindus and Muslims. Yeah, and there are copies of that f- film floating about. Like, you can find it if you really go looking, but it is difficult. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because one of the other things he said in interviews throughout the years uh, about what was very difficult about that was that it was a person who had lived and lived recently. So he felt like there was additional pressure to be really spot on, and it really raised his game. And he is amazing in it. Uh, in a nod to Lee's Hammer career, uh, director Tim Burton cast the very tall actor in Sleepy Hollow, which came out in 1999. And what's really great is that if you listen to the director's commentary on that film, there is a large chunk where Burton spends just all of this time sort of being awed at the fact that the Christopher Lee is in his movie. He is such a fanboy and it's very charming. And since Burton already at this point has had a hugely successful career, it's a nice reminder of just how big a star Lee was to many kids who grew up watching Hammer Horror. In 2001, Lee famously began his role as Saruman in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He had wanted for quite some time to play Gandalf, and he had even approached Tolkien at one point to make his case that he should have that role, and he got the author's blessing that should there be a film, he should be the choice to play Gandalf. By the time uh, Peter Jackson's project got off the ground, though, Lee was believed to be too old to play Gandalf. I think he actually thought this about himself. There are interviews where he talked about realizing that all of the things that Gandalf physically needed to do would have been particularly risky by this point in his age. Yeah, I mean, I have heard him tell it to that way, as well as saying like, oh, they kind of suggested that I might be too old. And then, I, yes, they were right. And in a way it worked out because I get to be the only villain since uh, Sauron is just an eye. I'm really the only heavy and it's kind of a big, juicy role in that regard. And Lee was really an expert on J.R.R. Tolkien's work. He was more than happy to advise the production department on designs and logistics, as well as playing his role of Saruman. And the actor had made this habit of reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy once a year for decades. So he really did know his stuff. Saruman's death scene was edited out of the third film in the trilogy in the theatrical release, which really displeased Lee because he felt like it took away from the story. He also said publicly, though, that he had no ill will toward Peter Jackson for the decision. The scene is back in there for the extended edition. There's also a much repeated story about that whole death scene, and Peter Jackson was sort of describing uh, the the sound that would happen when someone was stabbed in the back. And Christopher Lee explained that that is not, in fact, the sound that a person makes when they are stabbed in the back. And he knew this from experience. Yeah, uh, presumably from his classified 
work in the war. There's another uh, well, kind of sidebar because I couldn't find this particular interview. I know I saw it and it so charmed me regarding Christopher Lee, uh, a moment where he was talking about playing Saruman and how he was having this morning where he was just out of sorts and he was, or it was an afternoon and he was just out of sorts and he was getting frustrated and he had this sort of mini tantrum where he was saying, oh, it's this damn costume. I can't walk without tripping on it. And how Peter Jackson just said from behind the camera, well, you did it this morning. Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Lee was like, that really put me in my place. And I was always so charmed that this man of, you know, such incredible iconic stature, like what he was telling people in press junkets was that he had been a diva and Peter Jackson had fixed it. Like, I just found that the most charming story ever. I also um, like how... uh while the films were in production, like principal photography was done, but but all of the editing was not done. He he would say in interviews that his goal was to live to see all three films. Yes. And then he kind of did a similar thing with Star Wars. So in 2002, he began his two film role of Count Dooku in Star Wars Attack of the Clones. Uh, what's interesting about this is the duel between Dooku and Yoda featured Lee actually making use of his skill at swordplay. Uh, if you've watched it, you've seen that there's some doubling going on there. And he was doubled from the waist down and for the longer shots that included full body movement. But any of the shots that are just upper body are still Lee. He was still pretty agile despite his advancing age, and he really wanted to do as much of the swordplay as he possibly could. Shortly before he turned 80, Lee told a journalist that he wanted to live long enough to see Star Wars Revenge of the Sith open. That was in 2005, and in fact, he would live another entire decade. Lee was actually knighted on October 30th of 2009 in recognition of his contributions to the arts and to charity. Early the next year, he released a symphonic metal concept album entitled Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross. And then later that same year, he received a Spirit of Metal Award for it. Yeah, he was a fan of metal, which is, uh, I think, to some people so incongruous because he is such a, a British gentleman. <laughs> but he really was a genuine fan of it. That wasn't just like a, a thing he did for a lark. He loved he loved metal. Uh, go figure. And in uh, 2011, he received another big award, and that was an Academy Fellowship by the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, which is basically one of the biggest act, uh, awards a British actor could receive. And that was presented to him by his longtime fan and, at that point, collaborator Tim Burton. In 2012, he released A Heavy Metal Christmas and then a follow-up called A Heavy Metal Christmas 2, which came out the following year. Uh, and then things slowed down a little bit. He was still working when he could, but not at the same pace. Uh, and Lee passed away on June 7th of 2015 at the age of 93. He had been struggling with some heart failure and some respiratory issues. And his career actually spanned seven decades. And at that point, it was still going. He was scheduled to appear in a movie about 9-11 with Uma Thurman when he passed. So he he never retired. He outlived his friends and colleagues, Peter Cushing, Vincent Price, and Boris Karloff. They were all sort of a, a famous group of friends. And in his 65-year career, the longest break that he ever took from acting was only four weeks. Like That's the longest vacation he had. We have a few bits of trivia about him that didn't quite fit in. And he, in the chronological story of his life and work. And the first is that because of his height, which once he was once told would prevent him from having an acting career, he holds the Guinness record for the tallest leading actor. Uh, he also has the record for most screen credits for a living actor, uh, the Guinness tract, which was 244 films. And he actually had many Guinness uh, records to his name, but those are just two. That's so many. 
Yeah. <laughs> in 2002, uh, in an interview with journalist David Edelstein, Lee said, my whole life has been about proving people wrong. And in his 93 years, Lee was so incredibly prolific and he was so fascinating that we could never, ever cover everything. It would have to be like a dedicated month of shows, which would be super fun, but uh, not really realistic in terms of what we do. But in terms of his legacy, particularly in horror, uh, I thought it was best described in the words of the actor himself. And this is from an interview that he did. He says, quote, Hammer was an important part of my life. And generally speaking, we had a lot of fun. Fun seems to be a three-letter word these days, although with directors like Tim Burton and George Lucas, it's fun, 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 while also working yourself to death. But if you compare those Hammer movies to what's been made in the last 20 years, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Wes Craven, Tim Burton, and Peter Jackson have all said the same thing to me. We were brought up on your movies, and it certainly shows in theirs. I love that. I love that he was so, he was aware of his own influence at the same time. He seemed very, um, sort of down to earth, but also very proper. There will never be another Christopher Lee, I don't think. He's amazing. And I highly recommend, uh, hunting down any and all pieces of his work you can. It's, there's no end of fun to it. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. It's listener mail that uh, we get to say a big fat thank you for because this comes from our listener, Jennifer, and she sent us an amazing package. She says, Tracy and Holly, I have been enjoying the Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast for years and I've gotten so many hours of enjoyment out of it that I wanted to send you a thank you gift package. It's been a great podcast right from the beginning and it's only improved over time. Uh, I especially love some of the newer episodes that you two ladies have done. You've unearthed some hidden nuggets of history and tied them into popular culture and daily life in different eras. Earlier this year, I started a new company called Adventure Sense, making scented products to match common adventure locations in games, books, movies, and other stories. We even have a line of scents inspired by historical locations. The funky fragrances range from the pleasant, like the exotic exotic copal and spicy cocoa notes in our Mayan temple scent, to the odiferous, like the stench of dirt and decay in our moldy crypt scent. At various times, my house has reeked of every smell imaginable. I once accidentally woke my daughter up at 2 a.m. on a school night with the odor of a vampire's lair. I'm sure she's traumatized for life. Creating the scents is tons of fun, but making and packaging large quantities of them can be time-consuming and tedious. And the thing that really makes the time fly by as I work is listening to your podcast. So I have enclosed a selection of Adventure Sense products that made me think of the two of you, the past episodes you've done, and the hobbies and interests that you've revealed along the way. She sent us this incredible parcel, which I it came to the Atlanta office, so when Tracy is here next, we have to divvy everything up. But, like, it has these cool scent jars, it has scent throws, there are scent lockets that are beautiful, there are these two great little uh, mini fascinator hats that you can actually, they have a, a little receptacle that you can put these scent crystals in so you can just smell fabulous and fashionable. Uh, they're amazing. Jennifer, thank you so much. It's such a, like, incredibly generous gift and I I love it love it love it and I love that history inspires things like um, these scent products it's so cool so you can also um, check out her stuff for yourself at adventuresense.com and I hope you do because they smell amazing I love them I love a little non-standard perfumery so thank you thank you thank you a million times over again our listeners are often so generous and I, I feel like we never get enough time to publicly thank them for it so thank you to everyone who has sent us stuff and today just happens to be jennifer's stuff that shuffled up 
Uh, if you would like to email us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're at facebook.com slash mistinhistory on Twitter at mistinhistory at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And we are on Instagram at mistinhistory. So if you would like to uh, do a little research on things related to this, you can go to our parent site, House of Works, type in Christopher Lee's name in the search bar, and one of the things that comes up is a quiz about Frankenstein actors. So super fun, great for the Halloween season. Uh, you can also visit us at mistinhistory.com for show notes and an archive of every episode going way back to the original hosts up to the modern era with me and Tracy. And uh, you should absolutely do that. Come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and visit our parent site, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Howstuffworks.com.